I'll be reading a scripture from Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bob, for reading that for us. Uh, Rembrandt, you may notice uh, Rembrandt in 1633 had this painting, Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. If you haven't seen that famous painting, uh, you should go look at it. Uh, you won't find it there, um, at, uh, there in Boston where it was. Uh, it was stolen about 30 years ago. Uh, but it is still on the internet, and you should go look at it uh, there. Um, there are 14 men in the boat in Rembrandt's painting. Of course, there's the 12 disciples that are depicted there by Rembrandt. There's Jesus himself. And then there's another person there in the boat. And Rembrandt normally painted himself somewhere in his paintings. He's known for doing that. Uh, The big question as we get to the book of Mark, and as we are journeying through Scripture, that's where we find ourselves. We started back all the way in Genesis, and now we've systematically, book by book, week by week, We've made it up to the New Testament now in Mark. The big question that Mark is going after in this gospel is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And he's inviting us, if you have a love for movies or if you have a love for the theater, you you are invited to have this imagination where you enter into the story. And so Mark is wanting his readers to be entering into this story. Perhaps like Rembrandt is wanting us to enter into that painting and ask, who is this Jesus? And who am I in the boat there with Jesus? Well, um, we're going to give a quick narrative summary here on the entire book of Mark, and then we'll come back and pick up this sample passage that Bob read for us moments ago. Well, there's a careful design here that Mark does for us. It's, it's like a drama with three, three acts It's like three acts of a play here. And the very first act is chapters one through eight. It's set in Galilee. And everyone is just blown away with who this Jesus is. He's healing people, the people that are sick, the people that are lame. They're under oppression of spiritual dark forces and powers. And uh, he's also forgiving people. Whoa, and that really gets people's attention. I mean, forgiving people, isn't that something that only God can do? And yet Jesus is saying to people, your sins are forgiven? Who is this man? 
Well, we get to the second act, chapters 8 through 10, and Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. He starts, the story starts in Galilee, but it's moving, and quite quickly, moving to Jerusalem. But the disciples are really struggling. They're struggling, and they're, and they're asking, what in the world does it mean for Jesus to be this Messiah that's been talked about the entire Old Testament? What does it mean? And Peter, whenever Peter is asked by Jesus, who do you say? that I am. Peter declares in this very famous statement, you are the Messiah. He answers correctly. And yet Peter actually is assuming, though, that Jesus is going to be this military political champion that's going to take over the Romans because, as you remember, first century, they are under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so Peter is saying with his mouth, you're the Messiah, but his definition of Messiah means He's got to be some political champion, this military champion that's going to fight for us. And Jesus, of course, has something totally different in mind in being the Messiah. Jesus is thinking Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to be a suffering servant. I'm going to win against the powers of uh, darkness and political tyranny and injustice by laying my life down by being an atoning sacrifice. And of course, this makes the disciples think, oh, I thought we were going to become famous. Our, our king was coming to town, and we're going to be well-known, and uh, we're going to be blessed, and, and, and this is going to be great. You're, you're here to fix all the problems, right? And Jesus is saying here that following him is like dying. Being a follower of Christ is much like carrying one's own cross, Rejecting violence, rejecting arrogance and selfishness, and pouring one's life out in service for others. This leaves the disciples totally confused and terrified, honestly. Which gets us to the third act of the book, chapters 11 through 16. They're finally in Jerusalem. Uh, they're there in Jerusalem. The first thing Jesus does when he gets into Jerusalem is he goes into the temple and he scatters the thieves out of the temple. And he ends the sacrificial system. And then the story rushes forward towards Jesus' arrest, his trial, and eventually his crucifixion. It's quickly moving in that direction. And in chapter 15, almost near the end of the book, it's a Roman soldier that ends up saying of Jesus, this man was the Son of God. It's a Roman soldier that got it. It's a Roman soldier that understood the true identity of Jesus. The book ends, chapter 16, verse 8. It says that the disciples fled from the empty tomb, because Jesus died and rose from the dead. They fled from the empty tomb in terror and told no one about it. That's how the book ends. Well, let's ask a few questions. Who is Mark in writing this gospel? Who is this person? Uh, Mark is Jewish. Mark is, uh, he, he assists Paul and Barnabas in some of those mi first missionary journeys. So the book of Acts will cite Mark as being a contributor there with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, he's also a co-worker with Peter. First Peter chapter 5 mentions Mark. So one of the early church fathers, Papias, is the early church father who writes about Mark 
And basically a saying of Mark that Mark is collecting much of Peter's eyewitness accounts and Mark is displaying that for us. So he co-labored with Peter and so much of what Mark is writing, it's the memories of Peter. What time is it is another question we've been asking through each of these books of the Bible. Well, duh, it's first century. First century, there we are, and approximately uh, mid-60s is when Mark is writing his gospel. Now, the thing for us to remember about this first century is immense political unrest. Immense. We need to get into that mind space when we're reading the New Testament. That's because there in the first century, uh, there were those that were bullied by the Roman Empire. That included Israel. That included almost all of Europe. North Africa and the Middle East, all under Roman Empire. And so how does Mark's audience influence how he writes? That's another thing we should be asking when we read this gospel. Uh, Well, part of his audience are Gentile converts. That's right. There's some people in the Roman world who aren't Jewish, who are beginning to become a follower of Christ. The promises in the Old Testament are beginning to come true in the New Testament. This isn't just a Jewish sect. This is a global enterprise of the good news going forward to all nations. It's not a white man's religion. It's not an American religion. Uh, He has a Gentile audience, Mark does. Uh, We might call it the, the uh, the Roman gospel. Last week in Matthew, it was the Jewish gospel. Therefore, he's citing lots of Old Testament texts because Jewish folks would have known the Old Testament. But for Mark, as um, writing to basically Romans, there's a, there's, a, there's a Roman worldview that Mark is trying to get after. Those of you who are writers, you have an audience in mind as soon as you start writing. Mark is doing the same thing. And in the Roman world, they like it fast. They want the facts. Tell it to me just like it is. Us Americans, we kind of, Westerners, we kind of view it the same way. I don't want to discover things in Scripture. I wish you would just tell me the answers. That's a Western mindset. Mark knows that about his audience. And therefore, the Gospel of Mark travels fast. Have you read it before? If you read it in comparison to the other Gospels, it moves fast. Mark has Jesus like busy. He's going here. And then one of Mark's favorite words is immediately. Immediately. Why is that? Well, Mark knows his audience. Mark knows that this Roman world wants things fast. Jesus went here. There's history. There's event after event. And one commentator mentions that Mark is playing to the four pillars of Hellenism going on in its day there. Four pillars of Hellenism. One would be education. Number two, health care. Number three, entertainment. And number four, competition. Watch what Mark does to each of those four pillars of Hellenism. With education, Mark presents Jesus as a master teacher. There's no one quite like Jesus. In terms of health care, Jesus is the master healer. In terms of entertainment or theater, the crowds are amazed at Jesus. And then in terms of competition or the Colosseum, it was Mark that's presenting Jesus as the winner, the champion, the true God-man, who's the champion over all humans. And so how to read Mark? How to read it? Read it slowly. Oh, but you just said it moves fast. It does. 
read Mark slowly. Notice the questions that Jesus is raising in the book of Mark. And I love the beauty of how Jesus is almost pressing the brakes, wanting to slow it down as Mark is speeding it up. Questions have that ability. Do they not? Questions have an ability to slow things down and help us think and feel. Let me cite a few of these questions that Jesus asks in the book of Mark. And there are more than I'm going to cite. Mark chapter 6. How many loaves do you have? Very peculiar that Jesus asks a question right before performing a miracle. Wanting disciples to think, process. The next question, Mark chapter 8. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Or what does it profit a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Mark chapter 9, Jesus asked, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say to a person, rise and walk? Or Mark chapter 10, Jesus asked, why do you call me good? When someone addressed him as good teacher. Mark chapter 14, speaking to his disciples whom he had invited to go pray with him, who fell asleep, asked them, couldn't you stay awake? Mark chapter 15, on the cross, speaking to God the Father, why have you forsaken me? Questions have an ability to slow things down. Jesus is a question asker. Jesus leads with questions. Read Mark slowly. So back to our sample passage. It was read for us early, and we're going to try to get you back into the story here again after we've done our narrative summary there. There's a storm. Some versions say there's a squall. There's a squall. A squall means there's wind. Sometimes it can bring snow, hail. It's pretty much like a hurricane going on. All right? Sea of Galilee, there they are. It's um, about eight miles wide. It takes a couple, two to three hours to, to row across it. And it's surrounded by mountains. Mountain peaks are about 2,000 feet high. And so that wind that's in there, that storm is, is raging. The storm is raging and we think of Rembrandt's painting again, don't we? Those 14 people in the boat. One man is out front in Rembrandt's rendering of this. One man is out, out front like the activist. There are three other men that are trying to fix the problem. <laughs> you can't fix the weather, but somehow they're just tinkering with the boat and trying to do things. And again, I'm asking you, who are you? What are you doing in the boat? Where are you in the boat? There's a man that's barely hanging on in that boat. There's a man that's alone and quiet in the boat. There's a man that's confused that's in the boat. Perhaps that's Rembrandt's self-portrait. We don't know. And one man is, is terrified. He's almost in fetal position. He's truly feeling the effects of the storm and understanding the situation. This is bad. And then there's one man that's controlling the tiller. You know, all is good. My hand is on uh, the machine here. I got it. A lot of confidence there in that tiller. And one man is sick. 
Rembrandt has this individual as if they're hurling over the boat. They're just sick. And then uh, there are two angry men there, probably just like talking with Jesus, wondering, why are you sleeping? <laughs> like, wake up, do something. And then there's one person in Rembrandt's painting that's, that's kneeling as if worshiping, as paradoxical as that sounds. And I think, Rembrandt's not around for me to ask him this, but I'm, I'm thinking that we are a conglomerate of all of that. At any one day, you and I can think that we're controlling things. We've got our hand on the tiller. On another day, we're alone and quiet. Another day, we're vomiting at how awful things are. Another day, or even moment in a day, we're kneeling and worshiping this God, whom we don't quite understand. We're a conglomerate. Well, let me point out three big things that I see in this text. I invite you to see them with me. The first one is, Jesus does not prevent earthly sorrows in exchange for you becoming a follower of his. A lot of gods, religions may promise that. You become a follower of mine, and we'll cut a little deal. Treat me right, I'll treat you right. Karmaic thinking sort of goes in that vein. Jesus does not promise this. Jesus does not say that you will have wealth. You you will have uh, security. That's not a promise of Jesus. And, And a storm is what introduces you to yourself. Is it not? A storm is what reveals what you're trusting in. We can be going along just fine, but it's as verse 37 says, but soon, there's Mark's style again, sort of immediately, there's a storm, and that's a point. That's a point. Storms come upon you very soon. You can be doing all the right things, and all of a sudden, there's a storm. Now, some people, by the way, have this assumption that, hey, if I become a follower of Jesus, if I, if I start reading my Bible, I mean, they're talking to me about church, about reading the Bible, and I guess, I guess I'll start, so I, I'll, I'll come to church. Or I'll, I'll, I, if I do all of these things, then certainly my life is going to get easier. Don't you think the disciples may have thought that? I mean, these are the pillars of the church, these 12 disciples. It's when we feel out of control, though, that there's a a great place to learn who we're leaning on. It's when things are out of control. It's when the storm is in your life that you and I begin to ask and feel some of those reflective type questions. Who am I trusting? I guess it's as we look at the Bible, we should be counting on sickness, disease, not cynically, but there, we should know that there will be pain, sorrows, troubles, partings and separations, longings, losses, death. I mean, do you see the story that, that they're in a huge storm and God is in the storm with them? God isn't just trying to expedite or fast forward the, the, the movie or the story here to get them out of it. God is actually literally in the boat with them. He led them there. This one gets really deep. He led them there. The end of the day has come and Jesus ends up saying, 
let's cross to the other side. Oh no, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Let us cross to the other side. One mistake we have in our thinking is we say, if things aren't going well, God must not be in it. Have you ever said that before? The situation that I'm in, I mean, certainly it's, it's, it's too hard. It's beyond my uh, understanding here. Certainly God's just not in this. We, we make that de- declarative statement. Uh, another mistake we can say is if things are going well, God must be in it. Those are two mistakes when we're answering that question, who is Jesus? We ask, why are things so hard? Why must there be storms? Why is there loss? Why is there suffering? I mean, how would you ever know if you're a true Christian following, uh, if, if following Christ meant there would be no trouble, right? I mean, the whole world would be saying, oh, sign me up. I get money too? Great, let's do it. Of course we'd follow Christ. Wealth and health would be promised. And by the way, you may feel like right now today you're, you're in a storm and I just want to make room for this. You may feel like you're in a storm and that perhaps you've been in a storm and it's raging all around you and you feel lonely. You don't know if you're going to get to the other side of the lake or not. That's your reality. And I just want us to see here that God did not take them out of the sea. He calmed it instead. He calms the sea instead of taking them out of the sea. And that God will give you more grace than you and I can imagine. Grace is not a theory. Jesus is not a theory. He's a person. And his grace is real in the midst of the storm. That's when we access who Jesus really is. So that's the first point. Jesus is not going to show you preferential treatment and keep away all suffering and hardships just because you're a follower. Second thing we see here here is that there's, there's great weakness and inconsistency in a true Christian. Yeah, there's great weakness and inconsistency in the life of a true Christian. Look at how they respond to Jesus who was sleeping. And by the way, why do we immediately connect God's apparent inactivity with God not caring for us? Do you have an, answer, do you have an unanswered prayer right now that you think God's just not doing anything? And I'm so smart, I'm going to go ahead and assume God can't exist. Done. End of discussion. I've made an assumption. God's not doing something. He must not care. That's exactly what the disciples are saying. Teacher, don't you care about us? I mean, what did you expect the disciples to say? I hope he wakes up. (laughs) No, they're not nicely saying, I hope he wakes up. Okay, let's just be gentle with Jesus. They're real with Jesus. They're real with Jesus. And and they say, don't you care about us? Don't you care? And we do the same thing a lot of times. Lord, I want to believe, but I need you to show me a sign. 
I need you to show me a sign, and if you do, and by the way, these signs are really weird, ones that we come up with. Like, okay, I'm going through the red lights, and if they all turn green, okay, God is still with me, and he's real, and just weird signs we come up with. How about after the miracle? They still don't believe. (laughs) After the sign, they still are fearful. I'm wanting you and I to see their inconsistency and their weakness, and that's us. We are those people. After being an eyewitness, they still ask, who is this? (laughs) Who is this? And for those of us who are weak and inconsistent with our faith, this is good news. This is good news that the Bible would present, not hide those kind of characters, but actually put those characters on display and say, yeah, you're weak. Your faith is inconsistent. Think of Abraham, father of all who believe, yet when his life is threatened, he falls into unbelief and lies and tells his wife Sarah to do the same thing. Think of David and fighting Goliath with just some stones and and the Lord continued to, to deliver this David from Saul and others time and time again, yet David gave in to fear and unbelief. I'm citing 1 Samuel chapter 27 where where David says, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. David ends up running away and takes refuge among the Philistines. Same place where Goliath is coming from, the Philistines. Wait a minute, why is he taking refuge there? He forgets God's faithfulness. See, this is great news that we're given permission to doubt and say, I'm not sure. You can be that person on the boat that's uh, really doubting things right now. Really in an intense storm wondering, are we going to get to the other side? There's so much consistency in our own heart. And yet it doesn't mean that your faith is not true. Have you had these conversations with yourself or with friends that when faith is lacking, you or your friend says, there's no way I can be a true believer. I just can't be because I'm struggling right now. I'm speaking with several friends right now. And that's, uh, this, that, that is their uh, conclusion. That's their conclusion. I remember living in Thailand, and I've given so many stories about Thailand, and today's the day that I continue to give more stories about Thailand. Uh, I was living in Thailand, and I remember talking with uh, a relatively new convert uh, there, someone that I had the, the honor of leading to Christ through a series of conversations and in this conversation on this one day, this person told me, I, I don't feel like I believe anymore. I mean, I don't feel like I want to pray. I, I, I don't want to tell anyone else about Jesus. I, I just don't think my faith is real. And my response, I remember saying to this friend of mine is, I worry about people who aren't concerned about their faith. That's probably a spiritual vital sign inside of you if you're concerned about your faith. Our faith is weak, but our Savior is strong. That's what you've got to see in this story. Our faith is weak. Jesus, wake up. Don't you care about us, is what they're saying. 
And this should help us give patience to others who are doubting and who are struggling in their faith. We've been given that same amount of patience. The Bible reading plan, uh, you know, that, that, that you're in, or perhaps you're coming to the end of that, and you're going to start it again this, this upcoming new year. Uh, I mean, we keep meeting these characters that something great is said about them, and then you turn the page and they do something stupid. There's a weakness in their faith. There's inconsistencies to their faith. Verse 41 says they were absolutely terrified. And perhaps the greater fear that they had is that they were faced with the unpredictable power of this person in the boat with them. What are they really afraid of? Is it the storm? No, they were familiar with storms. They were familiar with the Sea of Galilee. They've been in that boat probably several times. What perhaps they feared more is this person in the boat with them. Look, we know about storms. What we don't know about is somebody speaking to the storm. And perhaps your greatest fear, perhaps my greatest fear sometimes, isn't even the circumstances. But it's wondering and having fear, can I trust the God who's perhaps led me into this circumstance? And that's a good question to ask. Let that fear be a diagnostic on your dashboard of your emotions asking you, who are you trusting? What is your fear revealing inside of yourself? And that gets us to the third uh, and final point here, is that is that the power and patience of Jesus comes to us in our real fears. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, says, Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Day in, day out, as a follower of Christ, you and I, on this journey of being a follower, are getting reunited with this Christ We keep asking, who is this person? Who are you, Jesus? Who am I? They understood these storms that what they didn't understand is someone standing up in the boat and saying, quiet down. Notice that Jesus doesn't talk to them. He wakes up. Doesn't pray. Doesn't say, let's have a prayer meeting real quickly. Gather in, come on. Doesn't start chatting them up. Instead of talking to them, he speaks directly, immediately to the storm. He speaks to the storm and says to the storm, silence, be still. And it says that the wind and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And the disciples are still. Boy, are they still. But they are more afraid then than at the beginning of that boat ride. What's the difference in Jesus in this storm? Bible student, if you're looking at this, what is the difference? The storm will kill him. Jesus will not. The storm intends to bring great harm and to crush them. Jesus intends to lay his life down for them and be crushed for them. That's the difference. Jesus asks, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, if you were an actor, how would you read that verse? What was Jesus' tone when Jesus asked that question? 
Was it one of rebuke? Was it one of compassion and gentleness, patience? And perhaps it was both. I think it must be both. Compassionate but firm. They basically forgot who was in the boat with them. We do that. We forget who's in the boat with us. St. Augustine, writing 1,600 years ago on this very text, says, Amid our anxiety and temptations, we may awaken the sleeping Christ in us. That's what your prayer life, my prayer life, ought to be looking like. In our storms, we awaken Christ, not as though God is truly asleep. And when we feel buffeted by our circumstances, and I mean waves are crashing in all around you. And as we've said in weeks prior, if they're not crashing in on you, they're crashing in on someone that you know and love. And you need to grow in feeling their feelings. There's strong powers at work in this world. Yet Christ is stronger than any uncontrollable chaos which this storm represents. I'll name a couple of them. Alcoholism. Alcoholism. Alcohol can be a demon. I've seen it destroy lives. I've met with couples. I've met with singles. I've met with lots of folks over the years. And alcohol is strong, but Christ is stronger. We should know that. Anorexia is another one. Strong, the way self-image plays on us. Feels unconquerable, yet Christ is stronger. Christ can heal any disease. He's with you and speaks to you. Peace, be still. When we're worried about our future, Christ speaks to us and says, Peace, be still. When we're anxious about the health of someone we love, He says, Peace, be still. And when you feel utterly out of control, he says, peace, be still. Or if you're running around ragged, checking off all the to-dos, and, and, and you're, the, you're the one holding the tiller of the boat, and things are going to you know, be determined to work out just right, he says to you, peace, be still. Why are you so afraid? Jesus is asking us today. We try to medicate and distract ourselves. You know, we come home and we say things like, I, I just want to veg out. I'm, oh, what a long day. What a storm. And for some people, that's where alcoholism, pornography, you name it, it just enters into the story for, for that person. Jesus is the only one who can silence the tumult inside of our chest. He's the only one that can do that. The only person that can do that. And so he gives us great patience. I mean, could, could Jesus could have, could have said, how could you ask me if I care about you? I should have chosen some smarter followers. <laughs> He's patient. When they accuse Jesus of not caring for them, what does he do? He cares for them. He cares for them. He continues to care for them. When they fall asleep after being invited to go and pray with him, what does he do? He never tires of them. 
He never tires of you and me. Oh, how much he cares for us. The same man who's in that storm with them, who is the divine yet human person, who is weak and tired and probably hungry. The same person, the one that cares for them, is going to be crucified to show them all the more how much he cares for them and cares for us who are perishing in our sins. Here in San Francisco, uh, the many great, beautiful, unique, quirky things about us. I, 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 love, I love my home here. I love uh, our people here. And uh, yet, I've also found in my own perspective and time here, it, it, it almost feels like a lot of people are very afraid here. We're afraid. I think that's true everywhere I've lived, by the way. We want to prove ourselves. We're working hard to prove ourselves. Is it enough, though, even after I've proved myself? There's some sort of fear that drives the human condition. People say here, you, you just you got to have faith in yourself. you, you got to do it. You. You have to do it. And I want to say, and I think Mark is saying, that if you... And as long as your faith is in yourself, you'll always be afraid. You'll always be afraid. If their faith in the boat is in themselves or just in the circumstances getting better, they're always going to be afraid. You're always going to be afraid. Seek the Lord. Seek this King Jesus or you will live in fear. It looks smooth on the outside, yet inside a tumult chaos going on. Name your fears. Name them to the Lord. Take your fears to him and expect Christ to calm them. That's what faith is. We're trusting in this Christ to calm those fears. I mean, this story is 2,000 years old. But it's Christ the same today as Christ is in that boat. 2,000 years ago. Same Christ. Thinking of Isaiah chapter 43, it says, when you go through deep waters, I, the Lord, will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown because I'm with you. As we conclude again, I invite you to think about Rembrandt's painting. Those people there in the boat, those different characters doing all those different things. We are a conglomerate of all of those people. Are you feeling poor and needy? So too was Jesus in a borrowed boat. He's on a borrowed donkey coming into Jerusalem. We'll be buried in a borrowed tomb. Are you feeling isolated and feeling like no one in this whole world really understands what I'm going through? No one really cares. So too was Jesus. Feeling isolated, lonely. Are you under attack from dark spiritual powers? Yes, that exists. So too was Jesus. Tempted by Satan himself. 
And are you misunderstood and misrepresented? So too was Jesus. All the way to his trial and his crucifixion. And ever been so low, ever felt so low that it feels like God himself has turned his back on you? So too has Jesus. Let's pray now to this captain in the boat with you. Lord, hear our prayers right now. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you're in the boat. Thank you, Jesus, that you have power to calm our storm. And Lord, in the midst of our inconsistencies, in the midst of our weakness, we look to you and your strength. We thank you. And we know that you're going to be with us today and as well as the upcoming storms that we are going to be going through. Praying in your powerful and patient name, Jesus. Amen.